Gracious Lord, we give you thanks on this Reformation Sunday for your word that abides forever. Lord, through the ages, you have kept your church steadfast in it. And so as we come to our study of your word this morning, we pray, Lord, that you would enrich and strengthen us by it as well. Help us to be steadfast in your word, to abide in it, even as you abide in us. We pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. All right, we are into Eutychianism. Eutychianism. Very fun. Everybody got a handout that wants one? They were going around. Uh, who's got the handouts? We've got, we've got some more here for folks who are just coming in. All right. So I want to start with this. Anybody know what this creature is? That's a centaur, right? Mythological beast. Our study of Eutychianism is going to cause us to ask this question. Is Jesus like a centaur? I don't mean literally like is he you know, half horse and half man, but is he some kind of new hybrid where he is like something that didn't exist before, utterly unlike, well, anyone or anything that's come before or since? Eutychianism forces us to answer this question, to explore it, to think about it, and why it might matter. So just hold, hold your thoughts right there as we get into our weekly quiz. All right, we've got five questions, and for those of you who are joining us for the first time today, we do this each week. Please note the asterisk. This is for fun only. It's neither graded nor a verdict on your faith, but I will collect it at the end and put red check marks on it if you want. All right, number one, don't shout it out. Okay, just circle, and then we'll do the answers at the end. Jesus' divine and human natures are like two colors mixed together. Number two, Jesus, Jesus is neither God nor man, but a hybrid like a centaur. Number three, the Christian hope includes the resurrection of the body. Number four, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And number five, when Jesus seemed tired and hungry and so forth, he was only pretending. True or false? All right. We'll give the answers at the conclusion here. All right, okay. What is Eutychianism? In 10 words or less. Let's do our best. Well, remember that uh, last week we talked about the um, heresy of Nestorianism. And really, the best way to understand Eutychianism is with respect to Nestorianism, because both of these are trying, both these heresies are trying to answer this question of how does the divine nature and the human nature in Jesus relate, interact, have to do with one another? Okay? How do these two natures connect with each other? Last week, with Nestorianism, we saw that Nestorian had a, a view where essentially these two natures, divine and human, were kind of like two boards that were glued together. There was no real interrelationship or connection, union between the two. And for those views, he was rightly condemned by the church. And Christians said, no, we don't want to be Nestorian. So Eutychianism is, as you might expect, kind of the opposite. Are you starting to notice a pattern, a trend among these heresies? You get one heresy over here, and then you get another heresy over there. And orthodoxy is this high task of trying to thread the needle, of, of figure out how do these things hold together. So Eutychianism, number one on your handout, 
is the heresy that denies the duality of Jesus' natures, the two-sidedness of his natures. Okay? Just a, a little word on who was Eutyches, which one thing I read this week said, we're not sure that Eutyches himself was a Eutychian. And I was like, oh, okay, that's helpful. Um, that's a bad beat for him to get his name dragged into it then. But in any case, who was Eutyches, other than kind of a sad-looking guy in his icon there? Uh, he was born circa 378 to 454. You notice that almost all these heresies we've looked at so far are taking place in the same time frame. It was a very fertile, ripe time for the church to kind of be articulating and really crystallizing its doctrine. He was a monk. He oversaw other ones in Constantinople. He took grave exception to Nestorianism, that heresy that we looked at last week. And he advocated for something that came to be known as monophysitism. Everybody say that five times fast. No. <laughs> monophysitism. All right. What's monophysitism? We're really going down rabbit holes now. All right. This, this will not be on the test, but monophysitism, briefly, comes from the uh, Greek mono, which means one, and physis, which means nature. Okay? So he is really doubling down on there's just one nature in Jesus, the, not the divine and the human nature. He says... Jesus had two natures before the incarnation, but after Jesus' incarnation, there's just one nature, the divine and the human kind of combined. It's like Captain America, right? When our powers combine. Is that Captain America? Is that Mighty Morphin Power Rangers? No. Anyway, I get those confused, as we all do. His humanity, this is a key point. It will come up later. His humanity was subsumed. Everybody say subsumed. Okay, so that's a, a fancy way of saying was swallowed up by, absorbed in his divinity. His humanity was subsumed by his divinity, you would say, like a drop of honey in the sea. And thus, Jesus is neither God nor man, but he's something different altogether. He doesn't have that human nature. He doesn't have a divine nature. He has door number three. We don't know what it is exactly. It's just godly man or manly God or something like that. More like the centaur. Or another image would be like, well, you've got your primary colors. And then when you mix them together, you get something new entirely. Jesus isn't, he, he did again, Eutyches doesn't want to be an historian. So he's not going to say, oh, Jesus is half blue and he's half yellow and those are just kind of side by side. He says, no, Jesus is green, right? He's blended together. He's something different altogether. The Incredible Hulk. The Incredible Hulk. <laughs> um, you don't like me when I'm mad. Um, all right. So any, is that reasonably clear what Eutychianism is and what it was kind of holding to? Questions, comments so far? Great, okay. <coughs> clear as that color page there, Pastor. Good. All right, as we always do, uh, let's just briefly make a case for Eutychianism. Because in this case, as much as in any other, Eutyches and those who held to it were not trying to be heretics. Just like the old PSA, nobody ever says, I want to be a heretic when I grow up. They're trying to be faithful sons and daughters of the church, trying to hold fast, but they go too far in one direction or another, or sometimes not far enough. But just briefly, let's make a case for Eutychianism. What was good about Eutychianism is that it stressed the novelty of Christ. 
that in Jesus, something utterly new has happened in the world, that God is doing a new thing. This is what he had promised and prophesied back in Isaiah. He had said this, behold, I'm doing a new thing. It is springing up. Do you not see it? That when Jesus steps onto the scene, this is something utterly novel in the history of creation. And Eutyches and Eutychians would rightly emphasize that and really uh, draw our attention to the fact that Jesus is not just same old, same old. This is not business as usual for God, but there's something different happening here. Uh, let's turn, well, actually, we're going to um, sl- slide past that right now. But 1 Corinthians 15 stresses this, of Jesus's, that before you had Adam, he was the son of dust, and now you have the son of heaven. You have Jesus. Utterly different. But 2 Timothy also um, stresses this. It says, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. And then this, which has now been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So one way of thinking about this, what Paul is is stressing there in that portion of 2 Timothy is that here we have, there's this utter discontinuity. So sometimes theologians will speak in these terms. On the one hand, you've got the continuity. Continuity stresses the ways in which, how in and through Jesus, God continues and reaffirms what he's been up to all along. So that in the beginning, God creates the world. He says, behold, it is very good. In Jesus, it's that reaffirmation of the original goodness of creation. There's a continuity there. So Jesus doesn't come along and say, let's you know, blow this cosmos to pieces and move to Mars. Says, no, it is good and it will be good again. Another piece of continuity is that Jesus doesn't come along and say, behold, I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I'm doing something totally, utterly different. He says, no, I came to fulfill the law and the prophets. He comes in continuity with those promises that God had made to the patriarchs and the prophets and to his people um, for centuries. And so there's that real continuity in Christ. But theologians will contrast that with, on the other hand, a discontinuity. Okay? That in Jesus, there's also utterly new things. Can anybody think of some uh, an uh, area of discontinuity in Christ and in the, the ministry of, of the New Testament and the mission of the church? Can you think of any discontinuity that we might find? Something that's different between now that Jesus has come. Yeah, Esther? The outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Good, yeah, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So before the time of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, was basically reserved for God's king, his prophets. I mean, you had special guys here and there, kind of the spiritual all-stars. But now, after Jesus' resurrection, ascension into heaven, the Holy Spirit is poured out on all of God's people. It's a point of discontinuity. Good. Any other points of, of discontinuity? Yeah, Lily. Oh, good. Yeah. I mean, so the scriptures, especially the book of Leviticus, is very clear. Don't have anything to do with blood. Jesus comes along and says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. It's a point of serious discontinuity. There's a continuity with it in the sense that it's in keeping with, with God's promises, but a discontinuity with how he's doing it, how he's fulfilling it. Yeah, go ahead, Bill. Inclusiveness versus exclusiveness. Mm-hmm. So that now, got my donut now. <laughs> and that's cinnamon. Is, that's, exactly, it's perfect. Now. 
So um, in the Old Testament, the, the promise, although God had it as his heart for all nations from the very beginning, but that covenant was made with a particular people, with the Israelites, right? But it's pointing forward to, under the new covenant, now that promise has gone to comprise all nations, Jew and Gentile alike. Just come to it. All right, so we won't belabor the point, but what Eutychianism really stresses is that discontinuity. Really stresses that discontinuity. We'll see this with a couple of other heresies that we'll come across too. For instance, a guy named Marcion and Marcionism, where he says, yeah, the whole Old Testament is trash. We don't want to have anything to do with it. The God of the Old Testament, you ever read this stuff? Ah, oh, that guy can't be trusted. We just need the New Testament. It'll be another example of just total and utter discontinuity. The answer isn't one or the other of these. It's a both and, as it so often is, as we're, we're seeing along the way here. So what's at stake then? Why does this matter? Why does it matter that we understand Eutychianism and avoid it, not fall into this trap? The first thing is, most bluntly put, and this is kind of number one with everyone, but it bears repeating. If you deny that distinction, deny the fact that Jesus possessed both a divine and a human nature, you really imperil salvation. Jesus needs to be both fully God and fully man, distinct but together at the same time for him to be able to save us. If he has something utterly different, then he doesn't share our true hum human flesh, our true humanity. Instead, he would share, you know, centaur flesh or whatever it might be, right? We need him to be like us. What's at stake also is maintaining the tri in the Trinity. Along, this kind of follows on from the first one, but Trinity is shorthand for tri-unity, right? It's that distinctive unity. It's both of those things together. It's so easy to just try to blur the lines, to rub it all together. Again, it's subsumed, absorbed, but to maintain those three distinct persons of the Trinity is important. And then thirdly, the abolition of man. That's a phrase that comes from C.S. Lewis, but um, the idea being that if Jesus wasn't, didn't have a, a true human nature, if he wasn't really one of us, then ultimately for us to be like him means that we would have to relinquish our humanity that we would need to stop being human and ourselves be subsumed into God. But Jesus didn't come in order to abolish humanity. He came to restore, to redeem it, to renew it, to make it new. See? And that might sound like a subtle or overly subtle distinction, but it makes all the difference. And we'll tease out some of those practical things um, toward the end here. All right, so before I get into refuting Eutychianism, questions, go ahead, Sandy. Good. So Sandy's question is, when we say that Jesus possessed a human nature, are we also saying that he possessed a sinful nature? And the answer is no. So that uh, the sinful nature was not essentially a, and originally part of human nature. So that, like you alluded to, before the fall, Adam and Eve, they did not possess a, a sinful nature. Now they had the, the propensity or the inclination toward it, but they didn't have it yet. Yeah, go ahead. Well, then, so, but they were created. Yes. They were creatures. Is the part of... Good. So, okay. So then the question is, is, the, is Jesus's human nature considered creature? And this is where it kind of harkens back to that earlier heresy of Arianism, which said that Jesus is, he's just a creature like us. He's the highest creature. Was he impeccable? Was he impeccable? And that's, that's a good word. Actually, yes. I mean, and he was impeccable. He was impeccable. Yes. So. Because he could not 
could not sin. So um, impeccable comes from the, the Latin root, peccator, which literally means sinful. And so when you say something's impeccable, it means not only like you got a really nice car wash, but you're like, oh, it is without sin, right? So Jesus is without sin. But, I mean, you, you asked, did he, could, could he have sinned? If he could not have sinned, then the whole, the whole game, I think, is kind of rigged. I mean, the, the understanding of, of the scriptures is that Jesus could have sinned. He was tempted in every way that we are, and yet without sin. But yeah. he still has a human body. But he has that human nature, human body. So yep. he still can sin? He could have. No, can. Oh, can now? He's the same yesterday, today, tomorrow. <coughs> oh, touche. So, <laughs> well, this is the, okay, no, this is a good question. And in fact, it's a good segue because the first point of refutation here, or the three, is Jesus is changeless. Okay, so Sandy's question, then let's ponder this for a second because it's a good one. I'm not sure I've thought of this before. Um, okay, so Jesus possesses not only a divine nature, but a human nature, which means that as he sojourned among us in his, his life and ministry, he could have sinned. This is why it's so special that he didn't. <coughs> Pardon me. Um, but he did not. Okay, but if he is the same yesterday, today, and forever, he still possesses that human nature. We've said before, at the right, exalted at the right hand of God is the incarnate one. He didn't slough off his humanity. He didn't leave his flesh behind when he was ascended. He was still there. Can he still sin? I'm going to say that in that exalted, glorified nature, no. So that um, St. Augustine had a great formulation for this. Um, he, he said that before, before the fall, we were free not to sin. After the fall, we were not free not to sin. And now, because of Christ, we are free not to sin. Have you got that? <laughs> so there was, there was a kind of prescribed freedom before the fall, in which it was possible not, not to sin. Um, and yet... It, it entered into it. Mm -hmm. But but now in see, I guess the way to the best way to think about it is that Jesus now in perfect union and communion with the Father, I mean as he is from from time eternal, his will is one with the Father, right? He wants what the Father wants. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. It says in Psalm 37. Jesus delights in the Father and so all the desires of his heart are true. What will happen for us, and to the extent that we continue to grow into the mind of Christ and the likeness of our Lord, as we're being sanctified, made more and more holy, is that now our wills and our hearts are aligned more and more with God. And so the question is a good one, but ultimately it's going to be a moot one. Because when we are in the presence of, of the Father, when, right now we see as though through a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Then it's like it's all just going to to go away. Ray, did you have a... a okay. Yeah, Court? He could sin when he was up there and we would not be saved because we could too. <clears throat> in heaven, you mean? Yeah. At the right hand? Yeah, that it would, it would, the, it would still be up in the air, yeah. as it were. And it's not up in the air. It's not up in the air. He has saved us to the uttermost. Yeah, Bill? I don't want to take us too far, but it would seem that if, if Christ could sin after the that's good. That, I mean, that's good. That's good Christology. I mean, he could, but he didn't. Right. Yeah, yes, that's right. He could do it, but he chooses 
He chooses not to. But now, so I think in his, in his earthly existence, I think that capacity was real and really felt. Um, I mean, with his temptations. This is not, he's not just playing around. But now exalted and glorified in his resurrected flesh at the right hand, I don't think that it's, I don't think that it's a, a near and real possibility. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if, if, if he is on the, if he is totally there, yeah. he has the capacity for anything. Sure. But as you said, he just chooses. Well, yeah, this is, I can. We're, we're laying on too much human. We are, and, and here's why, too, because God, at a more fundamental philosophical level, God can't contradict his own nature. Okay? And so for him to sin would be for him to be contradicting his very nature, which is not possible. And so it's like, theoretically, I can uh, sort of think about this in human terms, but in real, and when it comes down to it, no, he can't, he can't contradict who he is. Did I see a hand over here? Yeah. You just answer. I was going to say, yeah. God, he can do everything, but if he sinned, would it be sinning? Right. This is exactly right. Uh, he could do everything, but if he sinned, Another way to ask this is, is sin sin just because God says so? Like, he's like, it's not actually bad, but I just call it sin. It's no big deal. There's, there's some people who, who have believed this through the ages, in which case there's just kind of an arbitrariness, a capriciousness to the whole thing. But in point of fact, our, <clears throat> the God's law, his will, the way things are, is woven into the very fabric of the universe. And it's not just capricious. I say this is bad and so it's bad, but it's that his will is, is woven into reality itself. And so he can't, yeah, that's, that's well put, Sam. Okay, go ahead, Matt. No, we're going. Go ahead, Matt. So uh, we were just talking about this last week in um, the youth group. Makes me so happy to hear that. Did you guys get that? We we're just talking about this in the youth group, as youth groups often do. Go ahead, continue. In the Old Testament, there were a lot of things that were mentioned, and when Jesus said that they wouldn't do it, part of the whole point of God telling the Jews to do that was to see if they would even do it in the first place. Sure. So would well, that also follow along with that? So, uh, yeah, so there was, there was God, in a sense, um, not tempting, but testing his people and seeing, you know, would they be true to him or not? And so your question is, could this be a, a similar sort of instance um, for, for his son? Yeah, I mean, Jesus was, was tested. He was, um, <clears throat> so to speak, Israel, the, people, the Israelites, reduced to one. And so what they experienced, Jesus experiences. And the temptation in particular is really drawn out as a kind of mirror image of the Israelites when they're being tested in the wilderness. Now, Jesus goes into the wilderness, but where they failed, he succeeds. Where they broke trust, he held faith. So, yeah, that's good. Okay, one more. Go ahead, Esther. The, the victory that Christ won, um, you know, he did away with sin, death, and the power of death. Yes. And eventually sin, death, and Satan are... Out the window. Totally. Yes. And in the resurrection, Christ in his glorified body... Yep. You know, that's a whole different ballgame. And we're... Yes. the firstborn... And so when we are reborn yes. and our resurrection, you know, sin is no more. That's right. It's abolished. It's eradicated. Yes. Yeah. Yep. That's so, right. 
it seems like the resurrection is the, the tipping point when Jesus can't, he could have sinned, uh, you know, in his human existence, mm-hmm. but after the resurrection, yep. he's the firstborn, yep. and this is what we have to look forward to. That's exactly right. Not able to sin. That's right. Exactly. Amen. (laughs) Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay, Hans, go ahead. Um, Is mistakes the same as sin? Did you purposely say, is mistakes the same as sin? (laughs) Um. I am thinking of like uh, (coughs) when it says that God regretted. Oh, gosh. Okay. This is a good question and one that we're going to have to take up at another time. But I I think it's a a good question, but I do want to um, continue on with the the time. Take us two. Exactly. (laughs) That is a, a Gilligan one question there. So, but back to where we were coming from, though, Jesus is changeless. You know, what, how are we refuting this storyism? The first thing is to recognize that Jesus is changeless. Take a look at Revelation 1. I love this passage. All right, so Revelation 1. Beginning of John's vision here, <clears throat> starting with verse 4, it says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, as Esther said, and the ruler of the kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Okay? Alpha and Omega, beginning and end. Hebrews puts it even more simply. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Okay? So there is that essential continuity about Christ, even as there is a discontinuity in him coming into the world. Um, the Council of Chalcedon, or Chalcedon, I'm not sure which, but um, it sought to affirm this uh, and, and kind of thread the needle, as we say, with this identity of Jesus, responding both to Nestorianism and to Eutychianism. This was in, I believe, 451. It's toward the end of Eutyches' life. And I've also, I've printed this on the back of your handout if you want to follow along there. It says, we then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach people to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures. Ready for this? Without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. Okay. Four negations there. And this is, they're exercising what in theological terms is known as apophatic theology, which is theology by way of negations. Rather than saying something affirmative and positive, we're going to try to get at who God is and who is by saying what he's not. It's usually a safer way to go, right? But here they're speaking to both the Eutychian and the Nestorian. So those first two uh, negations, without confusion and without change, is speaking against the Eutychian. 
which was confusing and changing the natures of Jesus, mixing and melding them together. On the other side, the without division and without separation, that's addressing the anti-Nestorians, addressing the Nestorian, and saying, listen, yes, he has these two natures, but we don't want to separate them so um, utterly and, and, and so acutely that there isn't any communion of attributes. There isn't any actual um, coming together of Jesus in his human and his divine nature. This changelessness then brings all of this together. So that's the first thing we'd say in refutation to Eutychianism. The second one... Sorry, go ahead. Oh, okay. So in, in that part of the Chalcedonian definition, yeah. why doesn't it mention the Spirit also? Mm-hmm. Um, as, the, as the confession continues, he is, but you're right. In this section, he is not. And so it's like, wait a second, guys. We need the third person of the Trinity, too. It's a good catch. All right. At a little bit of a more straightforward level, Jesus' humanity wasn't pretend. And, you know, a few weeks ago when we talked about docetism, this came up as well, where docetism was the heresy that said Jesus wasn't truly human, just kind of appeared to be human. We're revisiting some of these same ideas. But Jesus' humanity was not pretend. He truly had his two natures, the divine and the human, inseparably conjoined in one person, one Christ, true God and true man. This is from our Augsburg Confession, our Lutheran Confessions. But let's look at a a passage, a scripture, where this uh, becomes apparent. Go to um, the Gospel of John, chapter 4. So John 4 is the famous story of Jesus with the Samaritan woman at the well. And listen to these few verses for both these of Jesus' natures, his divine and his human nature, kind of coming through in this passage. I'll pick up with verse 4 of John 4. And Jesus had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. All right, we could go on from there, but even just in these few verses, how do you see Jesus' humanity reflected and represented? He's tired. He's thirsty, right? Needs water. He's not just playing around, pretending, hey, uh, I'd be thirsty. If I was a real human being, I'd need water, but I'm not. Um, he is. He's thirsty. He's tired. It's the middle of the day, of course. His human nature. Now, how do you see his divine nature reflected and represented? In particular, in, in what he has to say. He's the living water, right? If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you'd have asked him and he would have given you living water. He is the source of that living water. He is the one who pours that out on the people because he is at once both God and man. He's not pretending in his humanity. He's truly there, but he holds it together. Uh, A hymn that does this, so many of our hymns do this so beautifully, but one, we sang this a few weeks ago, is, O love how deep. So notice these words and how it, it 
reflects both the true humanity of Jesus and his divinity. O love, how deep, how broad, how high, beyond all thought and fantasy, that God, the Son of God, should take our mortal form for mortal's sake. He sent no angel to our race, of higher or of lower place, but wore the robe of human frame, and to this world himself he came. For us baptized, for us he bore his holy fast and hungered sore. For us temptation sharp he knew. For us the tempter overthrew. He's truly one of us. He he wore our human robe, our human uh, vestments. He shares our frame. And yet at the same time, he is truly God, the one who is able to overcome the tempter, who is able to overcome sin, who is able to overcome the grave. Okay, a third point I want to lift up in response then is to say this. Salvation is not nirvana. Salvation is not nirvana. Now, I'm not talking about the 90s grunge band, some of you are fans of, but I'm talking about this Eastern idea, this concept that comes especially out of Hinduism. Any of you familiar with with nirvana, the idea of nirvana? So you're like, I've heard of it a little bit. The idea with nirvana is that ultimately, the ultimate goal of humanity is nothingness. That you will just dissolve, be absorbed by God or the gods, Um, ultimately that you will be subsumed by all things. There's that word again. And they will even use images not unlike Eutyches. Remember when he said that it's like a drop of honey in the ocean? That's kind of the picture of nirvana, that ultimately you will just dissolve and go away. Now, I know there's days that you feel that way, that you wish you could do that. (laughs) I would just as soon be a drop of honey in the ocean. But that that is not our ultimate Goal. That is not our hope as Christians. I hope that's clear, but if not, let's make it clear right now. When we look forward to what the scriptures promise for you and me is not nirvana. That may be a beautiful scene, right? Maybe a picture, but what you and I are not looking forward to as just being absorbed into the one, becoming one with the cosmos or something like that. To the contrary, our Christian hope is the actual resurrection of the body. And when we say that, that isn't just another way of saying heaven in, in the sense that it's where I die and my soul goes to be with Jesus. Understand that when we die in this age, our soul does go to be with the Lord. Our body goes into the ground. But that is what in uh, technical terms we call the interim state. That's kind of the, the temporary holding room. Make no mistake, as soon as you die, you're at peace in, pre- in the presence of the Lord. And yet, even those who are in the Lord's presence, as we see in the book of Revelation, are calling out to him, how long, O Lord? How long? Because what they're awaiting is what happens at the end of all things, when Christ Jesus comes again, when he returns to raise the dead. And when he raises the dead, what happens is it's a marriage once again. It's a reunion. The reunion of heaven and earth, the reunion of body and soul, so that at that time, your soul takes possession once again of its body, just raised from the grave, transformed and renewed to be glorified like his glorified body. So what it says in Philippians 3, Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies, our lowly body, to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. 
See, it's going to be more than meets the eye because there will be transformation happening. Sorry, thanks, Ann. That's from Transformers. So anyway, uh, that's what we are awaiting. That's what we're looking forward to. In the Athanasian Creed, you know, that long creed that we say once a year or less, uh, we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is God and man, who, although he be God and man, yet he is not two, but one Christ. One, not by conversion of divinity into flesh, but by the assumption of humanity to God. One indeed, not by confusion of substances, I see you, Eutyches, but by unity of person. For as the rational soul and flesh is one man, so God and man is one Christ. Okay? What we're looking forward to is not finding that we're just going to be subsumed into the one, but that our very human nature is going to be raised and glorified, even as Jesus is risen and glorified. Pastor? Yes, sir. Yes. Oh, I mean, and this is the this is the line that we're trying to toast. So John, oh, I'm sorry, Tom is alluding to John 17, um, and the the high priestly prayer, or Jesus is praying, as I am one in you, and you and me, Father, and and they are one in us. So there is absolutely this unity and this oneness, but it's a oneness that does not dissolve distinctions, but maintains them. What is so hard for our our human minds to to grasp in this age is the possibility that those could live and exist in tension and side by side. But there's absolutely that oneness, that unity. So, yeah, don't make me sound like an historian here. We're always trying, you know, yeah, a pastor, what an historian, you know. Um, no, it's both of these together at once. So let's bring it home then. Just a few thoughts in conclusion. Number six on your handout. Jesus can't perfect our humanity if he's not perfectly human, okay? And this is his goal. This is his aim, is that he is going to perfect, make uh, complete our very humanity so that, as God said in the beginning, it is good. He's able to say once again, it is good, and it is better than good, even better. Uh, I often go back to Revelation 21, Jesus' great statement, profession, when he comes again, this picture that we get in Revelation he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Not all new things, all things new. I'm restoring and redeeming, recreating and transforming this ragged, broken world and making it whole and holy once again. That's the promise that we have. All Saints Day next week, especially bring that up. So I love this time of year. We have Reformation Day, boom, right after that, All Saints Day, pow! So good. All right, how not to be a Eutychian then? A couple of thoughts. One, pay attention to church architecture and symbolism. There's so much in church architecture and symbolism, Pastor Malik could probably say a lot more about this, that emphasizes and brings out these, um, the, the duality of Jesus, his two natures. Uh, one thing, for instance, this is um, an archaeological picture of an ancient um, church, I think this was in, in Israel, um, where you have, uh, commonly churches will have the two transepts, what are called the transepts, so that from above, it looks like a what? Like a cross. But those two transepts also, balancing out one another, are symbolic of the two natures of Christ. Um, now, on our um, uh, 
altar, we have a lot of candles, right? We've, we've got many candles. Uh, we've got one, two, three, four, five, six up there. Um, but it's, it's not uncommon also in many cases for there to be just two candles up there. But in any case, there's the, the two sides. I mean, any kind of, of two-ness, you could say, well, that's Old Testament, New Testament, this sort of thing. But it also is sort of symbolic of that two natures of Jesus upholding both of them at the same time. Secondly, how not to be a Eutychian. Affirm the dignity of the human person. This is maybe where it's easiest for Christians, contemporary Christians, to fall off into a kind of Eutychian attitude. It's where we fail to recognize that being human is good and that God created us as bodies and souls together. And our goal, our ultimate telos, fulfillment of our humanity is not in its dissolution and disposal, but in its recreation and renewal. So I mean this, you know, for us now in the present time, but also going into eternity. <clears throat> Thirdly, learn the great negations of the Chalcedonian definition. Well, so that you can just bring this out, you know, in everyday conversation. Well, you know, Jesus, inconfusedly and in... Okay. <clears throat> but this is the really big one. And it's just a big takeaway with all these studies. Beware overreactions. Beware overreactions. It's one of the reasons it's Reformation Day, so I'll say it. One of my things that I really appreciate about Lutheranism is our willingness to uphold paradox, to live in tension and mystery, because the scriptures so often will um, bring out things that just held side by side. You might think, well, that seems like it's contradictory, or we're just going to pick this and not pick that. But our Lutheran tradition in particular, in keeping with the church Catholic, I think, at its very best, says, no, we're going to follow the scriptures wherever they go. And when it doesn't make sense to our human reason, then our human reason is going to say, okay, cool. I submit, I submit to the scripture and the revelation. Like, if I can't understand this fully in this lifetime, that's okay. I'm going to be true to what God says and what the scripture has said, even when it's paradoxical. Maybe especially when it's paradoxical. That's where I think some of the deepest truths are found. All right, let's close then with your quiz answers. Let's see how you, how you do here. This time we can shout it out, all right? So number one, true or false? False. False. Jesus' divine and human natures are not like two colors mixed together. It's not just that hybrid. Oh, which goes to the second one. Jesus is neither God nor man, but a hybrid like a centaur, true or false? False. false. Number three, Christian hope includes the resurrection of the body? True, true. yes. Resurrection of the body. Number four, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. True. False. True. <laughs> Wise guy, eh? And then last one, number five. When Jesus seemed tired, hungry, and so forth, he was just pretending. False. 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 All right. Thank you, guys. Have a happy Reformation Day. Thanks for being here, and we'll see you next week. Don't forget to grab your Dwell Richly booklet. <laughs>